The internet is obsessed with the war in Ukraine. When you think about content moderation, you want to stop violence and harm on your platforms. War is about committing violence and causing harm. You have to figure out speech rules which accommodate that. The war in Ukraine has also been called the first TikTok war. The war in Ukraine has marked a lot of turning points for the world. It undeniably marks a historical turning point as the largest conflict on European soil since World War II. But it also marks a significant historical turning point for the entire world. Often referred to as the first TikTok war, the war in Ukraine also marks the first time a conflict of this scale has played out with millions of people tracking every single move. Hi guys, I'm Agata. I'm Nastya. And I'm Kat. As you guys can probably tell, today we are talking about social media. Of course, there have been other wars that have been heavily covered on social media. The Ukrainian war isn't the first time that social media has been weaponized. When the Islamic State attacked Mosul in 2014, there were millions of people watching on the hashtag All Eyes on ISIS on Twitter. But audiences on social media platforms are bigger than ever before. And of course, TikTok is a uniquely new factor. But TikTok has also been used during conflict before. The platform was only launched in 2016, but it has been used to spread videos from places like Syria before. Nevertheless, it's true that the use of social media during our war, the war in Ukraine, has reached a whole new level, be it from civilians, soldiers, or governments. A lot has changed on social media since 2014, and it's not just that uh, audiences are getting bigger. I think that in the past few years, social media platforms themselves have gotten a lot more you know, savvier about what works and what doesn't work. And today we're seeing a lot more sophisticated algorithms that have emerged and that are shaping our social media experiences. There's a lot of talk about this seemingly omnipotent TikTok algorithm. So how much do we actually know about it? What does it actually mean? Well, I mean, like any other social platform, TikTok keeps the specific um, kind of intricacies and the details to itself because it's what makes it special. But we do know some things. Basically, its algorithms work with your interests and kind of how you reveal them in the app. So for example, the For You page, which is the main page that you have in TikTok, and the recommendations on there are based off of your previous interactions in the apps. For example, the videos that you've liked, the comments that you've left under content, who you follow, and so on. And it's actually really fascinating to watch this algorithm tackle something as unprecedented as a full-scale war being documented on its platform. Um, and so when the war started, you had the circulation of violence and destruction filmed firsthand by Ukrainians. And like other apps, TikTok had to kind of figure out what its stance was going to be. You know, do you allow people to upload the shocking content in the name of spreading awareness or, you know, in the name of truth? Well, it's not always necessarily the truth is the thing. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, uh, TikTok and social media in general, it, it always has had a problem with fake news. But, you know, now the stakes are even higher, uh, while at the same time, spreading fake news is getting easier than ever. I mean, just think about it. Even for us as Ukrainians, we don't always have the full picture of what's going on you know, in areas of active battle or in occupation. And sometimes when I'm interacting with content, I'm like, 
I, I don't even know sometimes what I'm looking at. You know, I don't even know how to place this in, in context. It's actually, it's actually pretty scary because there have been so many videos from years ago or, or, or videos from places, you know, completely different countries that TikTokers would post as if it's happening in Ukraine right now during the war. And these videos would get like millions and millions of views, tens of millions of views. And, and, and then you read that, you know, oh, actually this, this was in 2014 or this is in a different country on a different continent. And you're like, well, how do I explain that now to these 30 million people who saw this already? Exactly. And actually, I think it's also interesting that, I mean, on TikTok, um, like a lot of people that are watching, and this is also why it's called the TikTok war is because there's so many Americans that are watching uh, the war in Ukraine. And so for an audience that is already so kind of abstracted from, you know, what is going on in, in Ukraine, who a lot of these people, you know, they previously might have not been able to place Ukraine in a map. Now you're telling them, hey, um, you have to kind of siffle through and decide what's fake news and what isn't fake news. Like, it's difficult. And actually, I had this happen to me myself, just like with random um, content, where sometimes I, I remember I sent this, I think, to you, Kat. It was like a video of Ukrainian music playing in Saint-Tropez, and it wasn't real. But yeah, I remember I like that. fell for it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. They're waving our flag. Like, they're, you know, they're singing this, like, they're, they're playing this song like that's dope. And then I look and I'm like, actually, this isn't even like original music, but it's sometimes really hard to tell because you have editing of audio. A lot of the clips are posted out of context. There's a lot of like fake clips, the narration, and you can also be anonymous. So things are basically moving really fast without them being fact-checked. Also, I just want to add that it kind of, there's kind of an inverse at work on TikTok as well where I've seen a lot of TikToks lately from people going back to Kiev and mm -hmm. people filming their life in Kiev. And, you know, life in Kiev is quote unquote normal for a lot of people. There yeah. isn't, you know, there's no troops on the ground in Kiev actively there right now, you know, exchanging fire. And I've seen a lot of comments from the Americans that have been tracking the war and seeing the military videos commenting under these posts of Kiev saying stuff like, Oh, you're at a coffee shop and there's music playing. It doesn't look like there's a war. You know, this is all fake. Oh, yeah. That's so annoying. And it's really frustrating because I think that, you know, there's so much complexity and so much context needed to understand the war and what's happening. And I think that with TikTok, with this oversaturation of different types of content, it can be really difficult, especially for Americans to formulate an understanding because for them, you know, one moment they see troops in the trenches getting bombed and the next moment they mm -hmm. see someone drinking coffee in Kiev. And for them, I think a lot of people are starting to get this weird skepticism and, you know, mistrust. Almost like if, as if they're being lied to or yeah. something. Yeah. Which is difficult, I think. And it's also not just Americans, it's Europeans yeah, yeah, right. and anyone else as well. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I'm on American TikTok, so that's why I said that, but it's definitely, you know, everyone. And I think that that is really tough because TikTok doesn't have the tools for, you know, the amount of complexity needed to explain because you just show people a 15 or a 60 second slice of your life or a little clip. And it's so hard to explain that, okay, yes, I'm having coffee in Kiev mm -hmm. and it's calm here right now, but that doesn't mean that this is what the entire country looks like, which is, it's so hard for people to understand things through TikTok yeah. and why it's such a dangerous, you know, place to get your information. So I, I think that there's also, you know, another thing that makes TikTok particularly vulnerable to 
fake narratives is because there's a certain level of trust and authenticity. I think that that used to be Twitter. Twitter used to be a platform where you could just, you know, it seemed very authentic as people were tweeting random stuff. And it was, it was very like a diary. Of, yeah, it was. Yeah, exactly. And for me personally, at least Twitter has now become a very professional platform. You know, people get really credible news updates from Twitter, especially because journalists have started using Twitter. Yeah, a lot. I mean, Nastya, like, you know, this better than anyone that <laughs> journalists have really, you know, taken advantage of Twitter. Yeah. I mean, if you're not on Twitter, you're not really doing the job. (laughs) I remember when I just started, you know, doing journalism, uh, my colleagues would tell me, you know, you you have to be on Twitter. That's how you get exposure. That's how you get invited to comment on things, etc. Yeah. Yeah. But TikTok, I think, is still, in my opinion, at least relatively untouched. I mean, I've seen a few news channels try to use TikTok, but for the most part, it's very I don't know. I, I, it just doesn't, it just doesn't hit, you know, as, as you know, the news on Twitter does. And so I think that that also is what makes people so gullible because it really does feel like on TikTok, it's real people uploading their real lives, you know, uh, in a very unstructured way. And, um, you know, Ukrainians have gone viral from their TikToks from the bomb shelters and things like that. And so, yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And a, a lot of this actually stems from you know, COVID times when initially TikTok was a place where just young girls or like teenagers were filming like dance, like dancing videos. But now it's because, you know, during confinement, we were all confined. We were filming things that are very personal to us. It's given it this kind of feel of authenticity. And this has also kind of changed the people who use it, it's changed the demographic. And so it's almost as if it's expected that you want um, everything, you know, that you're interacting with is going to be authentic. Because, you know, you're, that, that's just kind of the way the platform works. And so this also is what makes users trust fake content on TikTok so easily. It's also the way that the algorithm works in terms of the, the timestamp, which is also really interesting. So the TikTok feed isn't chronological. And a lot of the times you don't even see the, like, the dating of like when, when this video was uploaded. Sometimes the video can be one minute old. Sometimes it can be months old. And unless you actually save this, and this is this this video is in your saved videos, like that's the only time you're actually going to see um, the timestamp. So when you're scrolling through your feed, it, it doesn't show up, um, and so you have no idea basically when this video was uploaded, and it's very hard to tell. So this also kind of gives you this first-hand um, reaction that oh, you know, this is new content, like this I'm I'm interacting with something that is relevant, but it might not be, and this kind of distorts the sense of reality. So. Um, you know, as I said, you you feel like you're getting content in real time, but it's actually not, it's not real. Also about the algorithm and the content it selects. I know that TikTok doesn't recommend or help boost videos that contain these violence and these graphic images. And I think that this must have changed during the war because obviously the early days of the war, a lot of the videos went viral of the buildings burning. And so sometime in between, you know, the first weeks of the war and today, they must have changed their policy because I remember maybe a month ago, I tried to upload a video of a before and after of Kiev and I didn't even have any blood or anything in my video. It was just burning buildings, but I couldn't even upload it. I couldn't even, you know, like put it up at all. Like not even just a burning building. Right. Which is, which is why I think they must have changed the policy because in the early days of the war, there were a hundred percent videos going viral of the buildings burning a hundred percent. I remember seeing them. And so this must've been a new policy because I remember they wouldn't, it's not even like, oh, I uploaded it, but then it got blocked. 
even when I went to press upload, it would say, you can't upload this video because it violates our guidelines. Mm. And so I think that that's probably, I mean, even for me, there's been a significant decline in Ukrainian content on TikTok. And that's probably why. To be honest, I still don't even take TikTok seriously, um, but I, I probably should because you guys remember how Biden literally summoned American TikTokers for a meeting on Zoom call to brief them on the war in Ukraine? Yeah, I saw the funniest memes about that. <laughs> it, I it mean, was. actually, it wasn't just TikTokers. It was a group of 30-ish content makers on platforms that included TikTok, but I think it was also YouTube and Twitter. And the White House just essentially gave them the basics of what's happening in Ukraine. And of course, most importantly, what is the American approach to this war is, you of know, course. so they kind of follow the narrative. Um, in general, I think this is awesome. And we can debate how good the actual content that was given to these content makers was. We have no idea what was said. But in general, I think it's a great initiative because as we've talked previously, Kat, with, with your episode on misinformation, Russia is paying huge amounts of money. Yeah to people to lie online like that the, the, that's a job description in russia so <laughs> we, we need to use you know similar tools and, and fight back and i don't mean yeah. lying online but i just mean that we really have to tap into this online space and almost and i i think we need to take advantage of all of these content makers that have huge audiences and, and some are, are bigger than you know some credible um important news sites so i think it's a great initiative i i definitely I agree 100%. I mean, there were a lot of memes and kind of a lot of jokes going around about the White House briefing the TikTokers. But personally, I also agreed that it was a great idea because really, I mean, that is where, unfor unfortunately, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, that is what a lot the content that a lot of people interact with and where they get a lot of their information and how they kind of process information is through these influencers and these big people yeah. with audiences. And Again, it's one of those things where, sure, you can make jokes about it, but Russia does the same. Like they do exactly. pay influencers to do this. And yeah. you can you can try and be you can try and say, oh, we're more serious than that. We're not going to do it. Well, that just means you're losing. You know, that's well, another yeah, that's place where approach. you're losing. Yeah. Okay, it doesn't and matter whether we like TikTok or no. Yeah. It's not about that. It's about accepting reality and understanding yeah. that. Well, unfortunately, as effed up as it is, it does literally affect our politics and our society. Yeah, so. absolutely. And I think that you, the U.S. is way behind on harnessing the power of social media, because I think in the U.S. there's kind of a taboo against, you know, information on social media. But the fact is that that is you know, 21st century modern information ops are happening on social media. Yeah. And it's mm -hmm. about time we joined the fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But also, I got a earlier, you mentioned how platforms have to essentially decide whether to allow people to upload content that shows violence in the name of spreading awareness or spreading the truth. This is a huge issue in Ukraine at the moment. Yeah, that's true. And uh, I see this literally daily. Um, so first of all, I mean, going back to what Kat was saying, there's differences between the way this works in apps. So for example, I was thinking about this, this just the other day that there was a lot of information, for example, about Butch on Instagram, but there was absolutely nothing that I saw on TikTok. There was like, no, nothing going around. There was no hashtag Butch, like let's show people what's actually like, what, what's, what the Russians have done here. And there was so much with on Instagram, which is also kind of interesting. And this shows that um, different platforms are deciding how they uh, censor differently. and. It's also just, you know, in general, becoming a huge problem because you have Ukrainian accounts that write about culture, history, or just the news 
and have their posts about the war or Russian colonialism sometimes or whatever else deleted for one reason or another. Yeah, if you remember Agata on Independence Day last year, even before the war, our shadows posts that got taken down. So oh, yeah. You remember that we put up a post on shadows about Ukrainian independence and it got taken down for it, it, they didn't even give us an exact reason. So, I mean, do we have any idea what the reasons are for these posts getting taken down? I mean, there are many of them, as you said. It, it sometimes it's a bit random, and and we'll get into specifics of this a bit later when we run the interview with the expert. But obviously, the most annoying reason to take down these posts is just Russian bots who are reporting these posts for things like hate speech or violence or misinformation. And the platforms are just not being diligent enough with fact-checking these claims, and they're just deleting these posts or blocking the users. This happens literally all the time. Like This happens to many famous accounts, activists on Twitter and on Instagram, too. Like Literally, my mother, she was writing things like, whatever, like F Putin or or something about people from Moscow, and, and she got blocked for like a week on Facebook. I was like, oh wow, mom, you're really stirring some shit here. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm really proud of you, mom, go on. Oh. But now, literally anytime she writes like an angry post about Russia, she has to do this weird thing where she like replaces letters with numbers. So the <laughs> like the, the algorithm can't like read and scan that like she's saying Moscow or something. It, it's really stupid. That's actually crazy. And I mean, also another very obvious one is the violent content that we already talked about. But the problem with that is that, as you guys obviously know, for Ukrainian users, posting photos of, you know, an aftermath of a Russian airstrike or dead bodies of killed civilians or any other violent scene, it's not just a post because we're just upset. It's quite strategic. I mean, there's a purpose to all of this. And the purpose is to ignite an emotional response from people. Like, that's the point. For, for posting these very bloody or violent images because it, it ignites a response so people care about this conflict and keep supporting Ukraine by spreading awareness, you know, donating and so on. So when these photos get deleted, maybe there is an objective reason. Like, I, I see why platforms don't want this kind of stuff, like, you know, photos of burned bodies circulating. Sure. But it still doesn't sit well with Ukrainian users because for us, and I say us because it happened to me many times and I was also very pissed. All we do is share the truth about what's happening with an inherently good goal of helping our country win this war. So, you know, and then we get deleted and blocked for that. Yeah, it definitely. It's, it's so frustrating. Honestly, it really annoys me as well because like people in Europe or in the US, obviously, it's so easy for them to just turn off their phones. And to not deal with what we're dealing with on a daily basis. And so when, you know, these algorithms and these social medias, they kind of get involved and, you know, they, they allow for people to just, you know, scroll through their Instagram feed and just like not see any of this, like, I don't know, whatever, violent content and not have to interact with what's happening in Ukraine, not have to think about it and not have to actually stop for a second and be like, oh, hey, maybe, you know. I should do something about it. Like maybe I should get involved, like whatever. Just like this is a daily reminder that war is happening for Europe. And when Instagram, for example, deletes a post, it, it is really frustrating because it really feels like we're falling short of, you know, what we're trying to achieve and we're falling short of us spreading this information. And anyways, it's like not, it's not productive. I mean, in my opinion for us in, in any way. But also when we post these violent images, we also do that to, you know, fight back the Russian propaganda and, and Russians may not post, you know, violent images, but the way 
how we show to them that when they say, oh, Bucha was staged or, oh, we're lying in this all fake news to to prove, you know, to the world that they are wrong, that it's not fake news. We have to show what is real news. You know, we have to show the truth and the truth is bloody. You know, the truth is violent and that's just how it is. And yeah, it's it's really frustrating. But um, to get some answers about, you know, this whole process and how this whole content moderation works. I spoke with Vitaly Maros. He's a very well-known Ukrainian expert who works in the field of media communications and digital security. So we'll run his interview now, and here is what he had to say. Okay, okay. So, Vitaly, thank you so much for coming to our show. We're really glad you made it here. So the first question that I wanted to begin with is... We wanted to talk about content moderation because I'm sure, as you know, uh, there's been a lot of anger within the Ukrainian civil society about how platforms have been deleting a lot of Ukraine-related content, be it graphic images, be it posts about Russians, Russian soldiers, the Russian government. So is this anger in any way justified or are our platforms actually doing a good enough job? What do you think? Uh, actually, uh, Ukrainians uh, and other nations do rely on technical platforms, on tech platforms like uh, Meta, uh, Twitter, uh, Google. And this is a private institution, this is a private sector, uh, which sets the rules, how it functions. And mm-hmm. since these platforms function uh, globally, not only in Ukraine or, or in Russia, uh, they set like uh, quite universal rules, um, which, which uh, uh, on Facebook is a com- community standards. Uh, and these rules, uh, they regulate what users uh, can do and what they can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's obvious that with the full Russian invasion uh, since February uh, uh, 24th, uh, Ukrainians turned to social media as their source of news because uh, yeah. they were following what's happening in Ukraine uh, from the first days of invasion. And definitely they share the emotion emotions uh, they they describe how they feel how they uh, uh fled the country and so on and uh, uh they definitely have the right uh, to express negative emotions uh, uh, against russians against uh, kremlin against russian soldiers uh, and they didn't control themselves or, the, or they didn't self-censored to choose the words which they used that's why uh hate speech is is something uh, very common in 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 this situation, um, mm-hmm. and hate speech is something what is uh, prohibited on uh, such platforms as mm-hmm. uh, Meta or mm-hmm. Facebook. It means that uh, the platforms um, moderate this content, uh, and they usually um, uh, have some strikes uh, uh, or or uh, like they they, uh, they inform users that they. Um, uh, they limit are their, breaking the rules, yeah. Yeah, they limit their activities and they can ban uh, posts or profiles itself. Uh, the very, the very good case of uh, of this situation, uh, a very good case is Roman Ratushny, uh, is a Ukrainian mm-hmm. hero who was killed uh, on on Russia-Ukraine war, and his phrase um, "More Russians we will kill today," uh, more Russians we will kill today. Uh, the, few Russians we need to kill tomorrow. Uh, it was widely circulated on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, but it was finally um, banned uh, since it's, a, it's obvious a hate speech. 
uh, and Facebook uh, declined request from Ukrainian uh, community, from civil society, uh, uh, to lift sanctions on it as a freedom mm-hmm. of speech because the, there is a tiny margin between uh, freedom of speech and hate speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this means that um, Ukrainians should be aware that um, uh, Facebook uh, and other tech platforms, they have their rules, and uh, if they violate these rules, uh, there will be sanctions. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Facebook had, uh, on the beginning of uh, invasion, Facebook has lifted uh, uh, some, some of its rules, and Ukrainians could express hate speech towards Russian soldiers. Uh, but I assume it was for some period of time, and now Facebook uh, returned its uh, general policies uh, or community standards. Mm-hmm. And what about the issue of Russian bots reporting posts and different content for for the same thing? I guess it could be hate speech, it could be violence, or just you know misinformation. Um, so just, you know, hundreds, even thousands of Russian bots working around the clock to report that content. And it doesn't even have to be high profile content. I, I've had this happen to my friends, uh, to, to me, to my mom. And a lot of these people are just, you know, regular social media users, but their content was deleted because someone reported it. Um, do we know how, how, how that moderation works? Do we know whether platforms are, are diligent enough with checking those reports because i mean there must be some sort of process to verify whether the report is actually accurate and uh, you know it makes sense to take down that content uh first of all we need to keep in mind that uh like 90 percent of moderation uh, on such platforms as facebook uh, is done by algorithms uh and and uh, some like I don't know, mm-hmm. five, five to ten percent of moderation uh include uh, the interference by uh by people or moderators. Uh, so, uh, yes, definitely, uh, it doesn't matter when you published um, uh, the post five years ago or 10 years ago or just like yesterday, uh, if it includes a part uh, of content which violates community standards uh, of Facebook, uh, it can be tracked uh, by bots because bots usually algorithm uh, which, which um, aim to search such content. So they, for example, uh, like the Russians um, uh, set the algorithm to search uh, through all the platforms like the words like Moscow. Oh, or, that's very or, interesting. Or so it's algorithm versus algorithm. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and, and they automatically report. Uh, but it's not clear uh, it, it's matter how many reports uh, the Facebook receive, if it's just like one report by one person or like 100 reports uh, of bots. Uh, it's not clear how this moderation process uh, is completed, uh, and I would say that if you if you use like this offensive language, uh, you might have some restrictions and uh, from from Facebook. So I would suggest to rephrase or uh, just just name Russians as Russians, uh, name occupants, and name Russian soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, and it will help you to uh, to keep online uh, and not to be banned. Uh, but um, also many many accounts uh, are blocked uh, uh, due to some um, I, I would say it, uh, algorithm biases or algorithm mistakes because algorithms uh, were prepared and set up by by uh, human beings which also may yeah. have some uh, mistakes. Uh, that's yeah. uh, and and such conflicting um, issues. Um, 
may be addressed specifically through Ukrainian uh, non-profits, uh, which work closely with uh, Facebook at least. And what are those uh, mistakes? Like, what does that bias look like? Uh, uh, when, uh, like, for example, some uh, some photos uh, are seen as, as graphic violence, but it's not, for example. Okay. Uh, for example, there was a famous case of um, uh, of girl... Uh, which is Maureen, his father. Uh-huh. And it might be reaction on, on the photo uh, of, of kill soldier, uh, or it was uh, like some, some maybe uh, warning. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure, but, but uh, I would say that um, uh, I also like see uh, some cases, where, for example, uh, some friends appealing to me, they saying, uh, "Hey, I, I was running advertisement for Facebook, and now uh, Facebook like uh, restricted uh, my access to Facebook because uh, it was some advertisement which was supposed to be uh, like violating some rules." Uh, but I am sure, like this, this my friends didn't violate the rules because it was some I don't know maybe it was some fundraising or like volunteer mm-hmm. services. Mm-hmm. Uh, but definitely, uh, Facebook. Um, if you uh, if you want to run a fundraising campaign uh, r- related to the army, uh, it it mainly will be banned because um, uh, Facebook uh, uh, see it as a I don't know um, as a um, proclamation of war or whatever like financing violence or something. Yeah, yeah, something like this. That's very annoying. Oh, this- so it means that uh, I mean uh, Facebook operates in the countries where no wars. I mean uh, Facebook uh, is created uh, for not for the war period. I mean uh, it just it just uh, like uh, like the global uh, goals of Facebook to to connect people and to communicate in a free environment. And yeah, so on. but that's just what they say. We all know that Facebook is used in 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 so many more ways than that. And Facebook operated you know freely in Russia before, and and Russia has started how many wars and has engaged in how much conflict. So, I. Uh, I mean, uh, Facebook, like Facebook, uh, still pays attention to the uh, countries where like uh, elections happens or the war mm-hmm. happens, and, mm-hmm. and they try to address it. But I would say that um, Facebook uh, globally interested into into revenues, uh, and uh, they they generally interested to have as more users as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is a huge pressure from them, uh, from from governments, from civil society, because uh, Facebook uh, is too powerful player, and yeah. it may influence uh, like the free flow of, of information. And uh, definitely, there should be like debates what is allowed uh, during during the war. If 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 your country uh, is a uh, is a goal of of, of Russian attacks and Russian mm-hmm. invasion. Mm-hmm. Because we're in a different situation uh, compared to Russia, mm-hmm. who's aggressor. Uh, but uh, there is little discussions uh, what is B, uh, the country under under attack, and mm-hmm. which rules can be applied uh, to this yeah. country. There should be like lifted many, many, many uh, community standards. Uh, and I think uh, this, this discussion is happening in Ukrainian society is pressuring uh, Facebook and other platforms uh, to, to take into account uh, that Ukraine and Ukrainian users represent uh, democracy and it depends democracy in the world, in the Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, 
yeah, but but this situation is also uh, demonstrates that we all too dependent on Facebook, and we are not ready. Uh, we don't have probably uh, alternative channels to com- to communicate if our yeah. Facebook uh, uh, post or our uh, Facebook profiles are blocked. Uh, users oftenly uh, like just start launching new like profiles. They create new profiles on the same platform, uh, but they still play the same game because. Mm-hmm. Um, they can overturn uh, Facebook policies. They can yeah. just appeal to civil society organizations to help. And I would say that many cases uh, are being investigated uh, and uh, in many cases are resolved. Uh, specifically, uh, uh, Ukrainian volunteers who run uh, fundraising campaigns uh, or, or Ukrainian uh, opinion leaders uh, whose voice uh, is very powerful, and if there are some restrictions apply, um, I would say Ukrainian civil society immediately appeals to Facebook uh, to lift the, the sanctions against uh, these profiles. All right, and who did you guys speak with? We chatted with Emerson T. Brooking, who's a resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab of the Atlantic Council and co-author of Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. And so we talked with him a little bit about the the weaponization (laughs) of social media, as you can imagine. So we'll run his interview now. Okay, so I think we're all set up for that. So just for a bit of context, Emerson, this episode is going to be about Um, the use of social media during the war. As you know, I've sent you a few of the questions ahead of time, and we're just really interested in kind of figuring out, you know, navigating the space um, and what social media has done to kind of shape this war. So um, we're really excited to have you here speaking with us today as an expert on these kinds of things. We've taken a look at your book, Like War. Um, So really excited to have you here today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. So our first question is, you know, the Ukrainian war isn't the first war to play out on social media, but it is being called the first TikTok war. And so in your opinion, how has TikTok during this conflict in particular differed from the way social media has been used in other wars? It's a great question. And I want to start with the, the first framing more broadly, because you know, when the invasion began on the 24th of February, uh, people were saying even that this was the first social media war. Um, but the big difference, I think, was that this is the first time that so many people around the world had paid attention to violent conflict in the age of social media. So people were making all sorts of pronouncements that this was the first this or the first that, but that wasn't really the case. You know, the, the, they called the Syrian civil war the first YouTube war, uh, conflicts between Israeli defense forces and uh, Hamas in Israel and Palestine have been called the first Twitter wars. So that's, that's some important grounding context. But then when we look at the particular platforms that have been used in the conflict, um, this is the first time that we've seen TikTok sort of join the stage as um, a medium where so many tens of millions of people are um, processing events from the war, and are also seeing such a, an intimate portrayal of the, the bravery of Ukrainians under fire, um, but then also the, the day-to-day life of, of what it's like to 
to adjust to, you know, uh, factoring in going to bomb shelters every day of not knowing when missiles are going to fall on your city, for, especially for young people, especially for, for Gen Z, um, experiencing the war in this, such an intimate fashion with people who might have been, um, you know, food influencers or, or culture influencers, but who happen to live in Kiev and Lviv and other cities. Uh, whose lives have changed so fundamentally and who are sharing their real and lived experiences. And because of TikTok, a ton of people can still go along for the ride and see what it's like. Yeah. And so I know that it also has brought a lot of negatives and not only just positives of being able to interact with the war on a closer scale and bring more attention to it, but there's been a lot of talk about the negative effects that it's had on the war. And so how do you think that this kind of plays both ways where, yes, on one hand, the Ukrainians can use it, people are keeping a close following, close tabs on what's going on, but also the Russians can definitely use it to their advantage as well. Have you seen that happening? First, the Russians did try to use TikTok early on. Um, Russian TikTok was its own significant cultural community. And the Russian government actually tried to deploy their TikTok influencers in support of the war. But um, some eagle-eyed observers noted that all these Russian influencers are essentially reading off the same script. Right. They've been given talking points by the government. But that, you know, that sort of thing plays very poorly on TikTok, which is the, you know, the, the most authentic of the major platforms. Um, but I'm actually worried about the role of TikTok in a, a different way. And that's um, the tendency to sort of exaggerate um, Western uh, triumphalism on behalf of Ukraine. The fact that on TikTok, I mean, on, on all social media, really, bite-sized narratives play best. You know, short narratives that have a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And at the start, the, the Russian invasion was such a such a classic story of of um, an, an unabashedly evil force um, committing an act of aggression and then being being fought back by the heroic resistance of Ukrainians. But war isn't ever such a straight binary, and it and a real war doesn't end in a few days, and you can't really condense it down into a, a TikTok. So a lot of people who tuned in at the start of the war. And who, who saw these examples of Ukrainian bravery, they have now begun to tune back out, but they're still under the impression that, um, you know, basically that Ukraine won this thing, that the war is over. And so TikTok and all social media, they, they play to our, uh, they play to the very short attention span, which uh, social media rewards. Right. Do you think that this was a problem? I mean, before social media as well, and social media has just made it worse because there's been a lot of conversation about, in general, the American public, even during other conflicts, having a really short attention span. And then on one hand, I hear camps saying that social media helps with that because people feel a lot more connected. On the other hand, as you said, it kind of condenses it into bite-sized. And so, you know, how do you think that this has played out? Has it made it better, worse? Is there anything we can do about it? 
Yeah. So that's a great question. And to, to take a st- step back, um, when people talk about media and um, the American experience of war, they often look to the, the nightly um, cable broadcasts of the, the Vietnam War, which eventually turned American opinion against U.S. involvement in that conflict. And I, I think a crucial difference between that and, and what we have today is that those coverage decisions were being made by um, companies, you know, huge broadcasters that um, th- they, they didn't have to worry about second to second impulses of the attention economy, right? If you're, if you're a TikTok influencer or a, a YouTube creator, you're, you're looking at the views for every one of your videos. And if attention is declining, you know you have to switch to something else to keep your audience. Back when we, if we look at media trends in the 1960s and 70s with, with broadcast television, um, you didn't have that same concern. You had a much more captive audience. So it, it kind of provided a, a window for, for people to have a, a fuller experience of these, these conflicts that don't have easy, uh, concise narratives or easy endings. Um, if we look at the experience the social media experience of the, the Syrian civil war. Um, there were a lot fewer social media users when that war broke out in 2011, but there was that same sort of wave of triumphalism. And then when the war became, it became more complicated, um, people again tuned out and they would keep tuning back in when horrible events happened. The 2016 siege of Aleppo, the starvation of tens of thousands of Syrians, these things briefly reignited um, attention, but always with diminishing returns. Because at that point, it was more, much more about, um, uh, you know, Syria is now just a war zone. You know, there's no, uh, there are good sides and bad sides, but it's complicated. You know, let's just end this as soon as possible. Like uh, the narrative threads had, had gotten lost. And that is, that for me is the, my great worry. Um, when I look at how war is mediated, uh, through these digital platforms. And do you think that that's just the nature of social media, public attention span in general, and there's not really much that we can do about it? Or do you think that specifically these social media platforms can have a response or some kind of role they can play in ensuring this doesn't happen? I mean, how would you rate the way that social media platforms have handled the conflict on their platforms, their responses, any kind of policies that they may be putting in place. How would you, how would you rate that? Yeah. Um, it, so first on the, the, the broad question, um, is, is I write in my book, uh, online attention comes with a half-life. In any case, you can expect attention on an event to decline over time. I'm actually working on a, a study of attention uh, on the war right now. And you could could roughly estimate that audience attention has declined to maybe two or three percent of what it was at the February twenty four peak. That's not necessarily doom and gloom. That's natural. You can't sustain those highs forever. But I I think the Ukrainian government um, actually realizes that the the profound danger here, and that's why you've seen um, much more serious messaging from Zelensky and from the government increasingly pushing back against this, this uh, sense of triumphalism or uh, uh, this, this diminishing attention, this complacency that we've seen in the West. 
But now to, to your question about um, the platform responses, I, I think that the platforms like Western governments were taken aback in those first few days as they, they rushed uh, to find a response. They started with the, the low-hanging fruit, uh, restricting the reach of RT and other formal Russian propaganda channels, because one could say quite reasonably that these disinformation outlets were being used um, to essentially justify violence against Ukrainian people. And there wasn't that much pushback as they began to take these Russian services off of their platforms. But as time passed, it's become a lot more complicated. There was a big scandal in early March where um, it became publicly known that Meta, the, the owner of Facebook and Instagram, was permitting calls for violence against Russians on their service. Now, what was actually meant by that was that um, sometimes Ukrainians writing in haste would say, you know, like, uh, uh, kill the Russians. They mean the Russians who are in their country um, committing a- a- acts of atrocity. but you uh people who are running these these content moderation teams said said oh you know is this a call to kill all russians is this uh uh like a, a generalized nationalistic hatred uh well understanding the circumstances we'll do a narrow carve out but anyway th- then that story hits the broader press and there's there's a furious um reaction in other corners especially and russia actually uses that then to formally declare Meta an extremist organization. Meta, to my knowledge, is still permitting Ukrainians to call for violence against Russians, but not outside of Ukraine. If you're uh, writing a Facebook post from a, a refugee camp in Poland, you, hypothetically, uh, you can't wish generalized harm to the Russians in your country. But that's just, just an illustration of the, the reality and the complexity of um, content moderation during a war, because it, it generally, when you think about content moderation, you want to stop violence and harm on your platforms. War is about committing violence and causing harm. You have to figure out speech rules which um, accommodate that. And we and actually, what, one final point here where we see failures. Uh, I, I know just I think it was two weeks ago we received word of the death of uh, Roman Rastusny, and uh, his final words were circulating on Twitter where he'd, he'd said, uh, essentially, like, death to the Russians in my country. But enough people, many of whom were, were likely uh, Russian trolls, reported that particular tweet that it was actually removed um, from Twitter as being a, a call to violence. But those were the, the last words of a, a martyred resistance hero. So it, it, there have been very strange uh, circumstances where the realities and complexities of content moderation collide with war. Right. And I know that you've written before about um, platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, TikTok needing a protocol specifically for wartime when fighting breaks out. And so, you know, what does that look like for you? How do you think that they should be addressing these issues, content moderation? What's, you know, what should the next steps be to prepare for future conflicts? Yeah. Well, you can't write a one-size-fits-all policy. I, I think that's clear. Anyone who was trying to write a wartime policy in January of this year, um, like all their work would have been irrelevant at the start of the, the war because every war is different. So instead, I, 
when platforms are thinking about this moving forward, I think there are a few general principles they have to abide by. First is ensuring consultation with the affected peoples, which in this case are Ukrainians. Um, ensuring that one is hearing from uh, Ukrainian voices or, or the voices of people who will be directly impacted by the policies put in place. There should be some consultation with uh, governments. Um, and there has to be some consultation with both governments because uh, Russians, many Russians, Many Russians against the war were users of Facebook and Instagram. Russians remain users of WhatsApp. Uh, whatever fragmented, whatever fragments are left of Russian civil society, they also depend on on Meta's services. So th that's a case where you you do need to communicate, have some communicative function with both belligerent parties. That is the defender Ukraine, but also the aggressor Russia. And then most importantly, you have to. You have to understand that any decision you make is going to be um, wildly decontextualized by one side or the other. In this case, the um, the violence against Russian soldiers being decontextualized by Russia and being used um, to ban a major social media platform from the country. Understanding that bad faith actors will always attack your policies. I think in some cases you have to work um, in a it, you have to be limited in how much how transparent the process is at the time, simply because the decisions you're making will be warped in real time. But even if you have limited transparency in the moment, you also have to create a strong expectation that everything you're doing is being recorded and that there will be an opportunity to release that information um, when the conflict has entered a different stage. Because the fact is that the, these minute-to-minute -minute decisions made by Twitter, by Meta, by Google, and other companies, often with imperfect information, often they're just trying to do the best thing at the moment. Um, these things have a tangible effect on the war. And they, this is information about their policies that ultimately has to be in the public domain. But I think you, you just have to be more strategic and thoughtful in uh, when that information enters the public domain. Right. And do you think that there are any precedents being set here in terms of content moderation, the role that social media has been playing in our lives. I mean, I think that it's been turning a lot of it upside down the way that we interact with our social media channels. Do you see any precedents being set going forward? Yeah. As I said at the start, social media has interacted with war for more than a decade now. But for most observers and most users of digital platforms, I think this is the one that's going to stick. At the outset of the war, um, the rapid, angry international reaction, um, I think it did help galvanize the international response, and it did help drive economic action against Russia um, faster than, than most anyone anticipated. Um, we have to understand that other countries who are maybe contemplating um, similarly aggressive military action, they're also watching all of this, and they're taking away lessons. China and Taiwan are hardly analogous to Russia and Ukraine. But that is an example where you might see Chinese military planners taking away lessons and understanding what to anticipate and how better to shape um, the social media conversation when they invade. But I, I think the, the most important point that I take away is that um, the social media platforms were making decisions that had a tangible impact on people's lives 
before any government outside of Ukraine. Uh, whatever emergency response meeting that Meta had in the, the minutes after the, the war began and the decisions they took, they were already affecting um, the communications of people in harm's way. And they were already making very difficult decisions without the guidance of, um, of any government. You know, weeks before U.S. aid reached anyone, uh, these companies had already made a multitude of decisions that had really affected people's lives. So what I take away is that these, these technology companies are now deeply integrated into the global uh, political fabric. And in any war, they are now a major actor, regardless of whether they want that responsibility or not. You know, they built these platforms, they co-opted these local media environments, um, they become these giant monopolies, and now they, they deal with all the consequences of that. And so do we. Yeah, and, and it's fascinating. It's been fascinating to watch, and all of your insight has been so incredibly helpful. Just for a last question, I want to ask, you know, is there anything you think is missing from the conversation when it comes to social media and this war? Because it's a topic that I feel has gotten a lot of attention and social media in general been getting a lot of attention since the 2016 election and the role that Facebook played in that. But do you think that there's anything that isn't being talked about that needs to be or something missing from the conversations we've been having? Yeah, I, I think Ukrainians know this too well, but I, I'm thinking more and more about the, the growing divide between perceptions of the war online and the much more difficult and complicated reality on the ground. Um, I've also been thinking a lot about, uh, gosh, just, just an early story, but I, it stuck with me. The, um, the ghost of Kiev, you know, this, this mythical fighter pilot uh, who was sort of an embodiment of um, the heroism and defiance of the Ukrainian people in the opening hours of the fighting. He, it, it was a meme, essentially. It was it wasn't one Ukrainian pilot, but a few who very bravely defended the airspace. Um, you know, it briefly lit up Ukrainian social media, but then soon enough, they had plenty of, of examples of real heroes that replaced it. But after Ukrainians moved on, that meme continued to circulate for weeks through, um, you know, the, the space of, these, of Western observers. And then came a, a counterreaction when uh, uh, it was revealed for anyone who couldn't figure it out, that the ghost of Kiev wasn't one person. And then there are all these charges of, uh, you know, was this Ukrainian dis or misinformation? Just this, this disconnect between these two realities, I think, is, is opening up. It's opening up in Ukraine the same way it did in Syria. And I do think that, that um, many other factors make this different. Um, many other factors make it possible um, to continue to ensure that the West supports Ukrainian independence, and Ukrainians are able to maintain their defiance. But this disconnect between realities is something I'm paying more attention to, and I, I think others must as well, as the, as the crisis and the war continues. Amazing. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. I think this was very insightful and learned a lot about the role of social media in this war. So thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. And that's the episode for today. Thank you guys for listening and we'll be back next week. Bye.